This is a big-timing comedy production. Welcome backstage. Uh, I'm here to interview Black Sabbath. I'm a journalist. VIP only. Groupies sleep with rock stars because they want to be near someone famous. We're here because of the music. We are band-aids. Are you jumping or am I under-medicated? And now, here's your host, Meredith Marks. I'm with the band, okay? All right, welcome aboard to Backstage Pass with Meredith Marks. And boy, do we have an exciting episode tonight. I've been waiting for a long time to talk to this guy. He is, uh, you know, an icon to me because he was a part of one of my most favorite bands in the entire world. And we're going to bring him in in just a second. But this episode is being sponsored by Cassie Denton Photography. You can find her on Facebook, Cassie Denton Photography, or CassieDentonPhoto.com. Remember, she spells it C-A-S-I. And it's DentonPhoto.com. If you mention Backstage Pass, you can get 10% off your total package. She will shoot weddings and mitzvahs. She will do pregnancy reveals and gender reveals, engagement photos, and family portraits. Well, I am beside myself with my next guest because when I first started talking to him, we realized that we had a lot in common. And we actually go a ways back in terms of my family and knowing him. And uh, one of my all-time favorite bands is Pink Floyd. And so to have him on my show is an honor, and I thank him tremendously. And I just want to welcome Scott Page to our show. Yay! <laughs> thank you. Thank you very, very much. I'm, I'm honored to be here today, actually. Uh, I love doing this stuff, and I'm thrilled to be talking about this. And I saw, heard you had one of my best buddies, Kenny Lee Lewis from Steve Miller's band on one of your earlier shows. And... Uh, you know, he's one of my all-time favorite folks. We go back a long way. So nice to know that I'm with good company. Absolutely. Oh, he was a he was a character. I loved that guy. He was very humble, very inviting, and incredibly gracious to me. So I thank him. And uh, you go back, you know, to Super Tramp and Toto and Pink Floyd. You have five different companies that you run, and we're going to dive all into this. But first. I just want to bring uh, people up to speed in terms of how far back you and I go in terms of my family. When you toured with Pink Floyd starting in 1986, my father's sound company was the sound company on that tour. We did Floyd for years. And it's funny, my father sent me a picture of you with my brother when you guys were in Versailles. And I sent that to you. And it yep. was it was a blast from the past, right? Yep, blast from the past. Yep. <laughs> so um, that's how yep. you and I are kind of connected in that way as well, in terms of uh, you know having that connection going way back, in terms of the sound company and touring and uh, you know knowing those sound guys and and they were my dad's sound guys. So that's a very interesting connection. Uh, well, to yeah. Have. Well, you know Buford and uh, Larry Wallace. Uh, the sound guys, and you know, obviously, your father's company was probably, without a doubt, one of the best sound companies on the planet. Otherwise, Pink Floyd wouldn't have used them. So uh, it was great. Yeah, it was really fun. That was such a massive thing to move around. I couldn't believe how big that show was, and uh, carrying all that PA and all that quad system stuff and everything else. So, and the pig, and the pig. You know, I actually have a, 
it's funny. I've been going through my archives. You know, I've been collecting archives of of all the bands and things for the last forty five something years, and uh, I just started going through it. I shot about a hundred hours of video uh, of Pink Floyd while I was out on the road, and thousands of photographs, and I collected every every newspaper clipping. And I have a. I was just looking, and I just posted on Twitter. I had a picture. I have a. I have a ticket from every un, an unused ticket from every show we did, and every backstage pass. But I've been just such a crazy collector with all this stuff, and uh, this is like perfect timing to talk about all this because we're kind of going back in time right now, getting ready to start posting all this stuff myself. It's incredible. And yeah, I was just going through that doing this show, looking at all of my backstage passes and tickets, and I found my. 1994 division bell uh ah. vip pass it was like lime green had a big statue head on it and um i went to that tour that was the only tour that i saw pink floyd so i was a little bit on the younger side i didn't get a chance to see momentary lapse of reason but i heard that that was like the tour to see yeah, a lot of people really, really liked it, you know, and I actually saw Division Bell. Unfortunately, I had to leave because I started my company along with Bob Ezrin, you know, who was the uh, produced the Floyd albums. And right. uh, there was just no way that I could go away on the road anymore. Uh, but, uh, you know, those years, obviously, with Floyd were just really incredible. It was just a, such an amazing thing. You know, Dave Gilmore is my all time hero. I learned so much from that guy. I mean, especially about music. He really made me really think about the way I play today, thinking more melody and less about the, uh, you know, the notes, playing a lot of notes. Now I start, every time I play, I really think in terms of the way he does, because he is the master of melody. But, you know, obviously, Floyd, what a, what a trip. That was a big old circus moving around, as you know. Yes. So let me ask you, when you were on tour with, with Floyd, and, and uh -huh. you went to these incredible places, and you went to Venice, and you went to Versailles, and you're traveling around the world and you're standing on that stage and you're looking out at those various venues. Does one stand out to you where you're up on that stage and you're kind of looking out and you go, I cannot believe that I am standing right here with Pink Floyd at this moment in this place. I mean, was there a venue like that? There, there's actually two of them that were like that. And the, the, the number one was Venice. Because, you know, when we did Venice, that was they floated these two barges down the size of a football field from Oslo, took a couple weeks, set up 150 yards off of St. Mark's Square. Um, and it was took five days to set it up. It was broadcast to over 100 million people on a live. They lit the entire canal all the way as far as you could see to both sides of the of the canal facing St. Mark's Square. The um, uh, sound thing was on its own uh, floating barge out about, a, you know, 50, 50 yards off so they could actually mix the sound. But that show was spectacular because people came for, you know, all over the world and came because it was a free Pink Floyd concert. That entire city, there was not a square inch. You could not move in that place. And that, the excitement of that thing was just incredible in the vibe. And it's interesting because I just started looking at all my footage from that because I basically stayed up around the clock for those four to five days videoing this thing as much as I could because wow. it, was such, it was such a spectacular event. And I remember that it poured rain the night before and they're setting up cameras and they've got, you know, you can imagine out there in this place and people were living on their gondolas to not lose their space. Right. So they were sleeping on the gondolas. There was no way to move around the city because, unless you could go by boat and those boat rides, you know, to go like 100 yards, they charge you like 60 bucks. 
and it was crazy. But that particular show, and then once we finished playing the show, they uh, set off about a half a million dollars worth of fireworks, and that place was just on fire. There was nothing like that. I don't think there'll ever be anything like that. I know Venice will never do it again. They, uh, I heard that the whole city council, and I'm not 100%, they all got fired. Uh, because what happened was, is all the bathrooms, all the buildings, yes. everybody cl- closed up. Yes. And so it was total, total destruction. I went over there that night because I wanted to film the other side after we finished the show. And I have never seen so much garbage. People sleeping in the streets. <laughs> Venice was a mess. And one of the other things that was interesting, I remember they were like panicking, trying to get the uplink to get the show uh, because they're going to 100, 100, over 100 million people, 126 countries to broadcast this thing live. And it wasn't like up until the last two minutes, like three to four or five minutes, they were able to get an uplink. So it was massive scrambling that was going on during that whole show. And I remember playing that show. I was so tired because I was up for all those days. But when I looked out over all of that, and the city lit and all the people and it just jammed to the masses. Um, it was actually very invigorating for sure. Well, so I was talking to my dad, you know, obviously he knows that I'm I'm interviewing you and and he brought up the Venice show and he said, you know, if you didn't have a backstage pass and you weren't a part of the crew and the band, um, you didn't want to be on that other side because there were a lack of bathrooms. And he said, well, let's just put it this way. It stunk. OK, oh, but he said was- the, the, the the highlight of that entire show after everything was flying that pig right didn't they fly it didn't you fly it over the canal like, yeah they yeah I, I don't remember exactly what it was but i knew because i didn't see that part of it i think it might have come out and then they flew it out and i don't remember a whole bunch about that but i do remember at that as soon as it finished uh gilmore myself and a couple of the other guys went up and got on the roof of the of one of the uh um dressing rooms because they built it was like a little city out there on this thing because right. we had all these dressing rooms actually semi trucks were actually on those barges that's how big it was that had all the gear and we laid on that roof and we watched that you know that all those fireworks and it was just it was pretty spectacular but as your pop knows and by the way say hi to your pop for me would you i sure will and he says hello as well excellent <laughs> So, yeah, that that I mean, that stood out to him. And, you know, he was on tour with you guys for a while as well and and saw the various shows. And then, of course, he said Versailles. I mean, there was like nothing like that as well. That was the second I was going to say it's Venice and Versailles were the two spectacular events, because I know that uh, I'll never forget that particular show. And what's interesting is I actually shot that entire show with one shot. So I started my camera in the dressing room and I never shut it off through the whole thing until the very end. And I was just actually looking at this the other day, which was fun because I had taped off all these sections where I could set my camera because when I had to go play, I had to run out and play. So I'd set up a shot and I had it all taped off. So I'd set up the shot. I'd run out and play and then I'd grab the camera and run underneath the stage, which was almost like a little city. You'd see guys laying around in hammocks and stuff, all the crew (laughs) underneath the stage. And shooting all this stuff that's going on, I go up there and I shoot Gilmore through the stage because the stage was, uh, uh, you know, it was um, it was gridded so you could see through the stage. So I'd go over and I look at Gilmore and kind of show up at him and stuff. But yeah, that particular show was another one that was incredible because they also brought in I, I can't remember how many, but a, a ton more. I think maybe I think I heard like eight to ten more laser stations at the time. And I'll never forget the moment Gilmore hit 
the solo on Comfortably Numb, the ending solo, uh, the solo on Comfortably Numb, they, Mark Brickman, who was a lighting designer, hit the thing and they built an entire laser grid over the 90,000 people that were there at the palace. And I could hear, you could actually hear everybody go, <gasps> like, even though it was like, you could just feel the energy of when that happened. And actually, that solo that Gilmore played on the very end, he just soared for minutes, probably played four or five minutes at the end, just soloing, is one of the all-time great solos I've ever heard Dave play because it just starts and it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows. And that was an incredible show for sure. And that was the first time anybody like that had played there, I believe, also. It's like you take us right there. Uh, my producer, Mike, who is here as well, he and I are huge Pink Floyd fans, so we're just sitting here drooling at the prospect of hearing all of these details and imagining being there. Um, because I mean, that's just it's an it's such a it's such a spectacular show, and any any tour that they did with the lights and the pig and everything, the sound, it just you, in order to feel everything, you had to have gone. And been yeah. part of that to imagine Versailles and Venice and all the other, I mean, Japan and all the other places that you guys have toured. Um, and yeah, it was crazy. You know, one of the interesting things was I remember when we toured, when we basically first I, we went to we went to uh, Toronto. That's where we rehearsed and we rehearsed out in an airplane hangar actually out on the tarmac. So they used to have to bus us over in between 747s going by. And they took us out of this tournament. I'll never forget the day I was sitting there with my friend Bob Bradshaw, who was Dave Gilmore, built all the pedal board system and stuff that Dave used. And we were sitting there. The place was, you know, just crew. But we're in this giant hangar. And I was sitting there in the middle and the band was, you know, playing some stuff. And there were pigs flying and they had like the beds flying over and they had a little flag. So all this stuff was going and the doors were open and I could see 747 going by. And it was just like, I saw that and I said, holy cow, this is really a big deal. Um, so it was really fun. I mean, you know, the Floyd, when they do, whatever they do, it's always as grand as it can possibly be. It's just an amazing show. And it was, like I said, it was like a circus traveling around. I remember looking at people's, uh, you know, uh, tour passes, you know, their, the crew. And it was, I saw one that said like 160. So there was like a lot of people traveling on that tour for wow. sure. Wow. Bob yeah. still has that bed. Who? Bob still has that bed. Oh, does he? Oh, wow. That's the bed. He has the bed. Well, you know, I got actually, I shot, I was also looking, I saw some video I found of myself actually inside the pig. So I shot the inside of the pig with my video camera. So oh, it's you're going to have to post that because I want to see that. Oh, yeah, I've got, I've got a lot. Actually, what I'm doing is I'm putting all my archives together. I'm getting them ready to launch on my network. Uh, whole Pink Floyd channel where I'm going to bring out all this video and all these pictures and just a ton of, of stuff. So that's going to be launching sometime in August. So you'll have to kind of join my network and check it all out. Where can people find that? Tell us where to go. Well, yeah. So what's happened is just my, my company is called Ignited Network. And we build this mobile uh, kind of live streaming media network. Um, and, uh, it's really the interesting part about it is it's all really based around conversations because we're moving into the conversation economy. I'm a tech guy and my whole background, it really is in this whole social media, online networking and kind of where things are going. And we're moving into this real time world where social media is now starting to wane and, and really real time messaging is taking over WhatsApp, WeChat, uh, Facebook live, all those are now starting to uh, take over. So we've built this network really designed for content creators to create a business 
uh, by uh, inviting them to this, the idea of the super fan network. So uh, I'm going to be one of the first artists launching on it, actually, along with nobody knows this, I'll tell you right now, Akon. Oh, okay. uh, it's going to be on our network and we're actually getting ready to launch this. And so that'll be coming up in um, probably I'm looking at well, Akon's going to launch a little later October, but I'm going to be jumping in, starting to get people to sign up for the network starting here in the next week or so. But they'll get that. What they'll do is they'll go to this landing page. They'll click. Uh, it's a private network, so it's a mobile network. So they'll download the mobile app and then they'll be connected to this uh, network. So that, uh, that'll be coming up. I don't have the exact date when we're going to launch, but that'll uh, uh, definitely have them follow me on Twitter. I'm at, at I-A-M Scott Page, P-A-G-E. Uh, please follow me, tweet me, uh, let me know, uh, and I'll let you know exactly when that all starts. And obviously, I'll keep up with you and keep you informed on what's going on. Yes, please, because I would love to see that footage. I mean, it just... You're never going to see that from anybody else. So it's a real, I mean, this is a real backstage pass. This is a real behind the scenes oh. look at what it was yeah. like. Yeah, here's one I'll tell you a story just for fun that I saw the other day. It was Rick Wright's birthday. So I got this on video. It's Rick Wright's birthday. And I, I think we're, I can't remember where I didn't label that tape. I think it was either we were in France or in Italy. I can't remember one of the two places. And so they had a birthday hang for him uh, before the show. Uh, and there was about maybe 200 people, all the cast, the crew, everybody was there and they had like whatever the equivalent of a mayor of the city would be in those countries there giving him the, you know, the plaque for, you know, his birthday, making it Rick Wright day, uh, the whole thing. And I'm sitting there video shooting it and they had this cake that was about, oh, you know, five feet tall, beautiful cake layered. And there was like six or seven cakes around the outside and the lady was the, you know, that they uh, uh, actually made the cake was the was this little lady. She looked like she was in her mid 80s and she was the prime, you know, pastry chef in that country. And she made this thing big deal. And they handed Rick Wright this big bottle of uh, like Dom Perignon, one of those mat big magnums. And I'm sitting there filming and I'm watching this whole thing. And then all of a sudden I see while the ceremony is going on, the hands of the band going under the cakes. Mm. And the next thing you know, it's a massive food fight. <laughs> they take the cakes and they smack Rick like bam, bam, bam with these cakes. Now it turns into a massive food fight. And I'm filming this thing and I can't even believe what I'm seeing right now. This poor woman who made these cakes was not very happy to see her masterpieces getting turning into a massive food fight. The next thing Dave Gilmore sees me and he grabs a big chunk of cake because he sees I'm filming. He starts coming at me and you hear me going, no, Dave, don't do it. And he goes, bam, on the top of my head with a piece of cake. You can see it fall in front of the lens. And then he looks at me, takes the other hand and smashes it into the lens of the camera. <laughs> Classic Pink Floyd moment. Not too many people have ever seen that. And so, yeah, a lot of this footage and everything I've done is really a lot of behind the scenes stuff. And it's it's really a trip to go back and watch right now. That's like watching my, my youth. Uh, my, my youth come right before me again. So it's pretty cool. So anyway, it'll be fun stuff. I think people will really enjoy it. And they, they will enjoy it. I mean, because it's something that they'll never be able to see. And the cool thing about that is, you know, the, these were filmed in the late 80s where you had camcorders. And it's camcorders. Like, yeah. Yeah. Big old camcorder. I carried it everywhere. I bought it in Japan and everybody said, oh, you won't shoot. I shot like every day 
for the entire time we were on the road. So everybody got used to me, right? Yeah. At first it was like, Paige is going to do it for a little while. And then I just, I became the fly on the wall. Like I always had it. But could so, you imagine if you were touring with Pink Floyd today and you had FaceTime and you had Facebook Live and you had all of these, you know, products now where you can just snap things right away, edit and put it out there to social media, yeah. to everybody. So the the nice thing is, is that you've had these collections. This is, you know, I hate to say it, but it is It's like old school. And then you get to put yeah. it out there and and introduce it to people, which is fantastic. Oh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. So tell me, you were, so you're the son of Bill Page. Bill Page, the papa, yeah. Who was in the Lawrence Welk band. Yeah, I grew up in the Lawrence Welk uh, era. It's actually funny. There's some YouTube, there's a couple of videos. There's one with me and my dad when I was six years old playing on the show with him. Uh, yeah, I grew up in that whole thing and that was interesting. So I've been in the entertainment space pretty much since I've grown up and, you know, Lawrence Welk at the time was one of the only, was one of the first variety shows on television. Right. And so, yeah, I grew, I grew up in that whole thing. My dad was a, you know, an incredible musician, uh, was on that show for 14 years and then, uh, later went to, uh, NBC staff and he was doing shows at NBC and then at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles and, he was also, which is interesting, people don't realize, is he was one of the uh, inventors of the wah-wah pedal. Oh. And, which is one of the great things. And I actually owned the number one wah-wah pedal back years ago, and I lost it. I can't believe oh, it. Oh, no. And uh, also, my father was, there's a, I don't know if you saw the Dave Grohl movie, uh, Sound City. You remember that studio? There's a big, famous studio, which all those records came out with Dave Grohl. Um, actually did a documentary called Sound City. He bought the soundboard, uh, the mixing console out of there, the Neve. But that was my dad's studio, and we started that thing. And then to see that turn into a piece of history later on was pretty pretty cool. But, yeah, been in the music business with my dad all those years. So when he went into the TV side of the business, that's when you were on you were on the Hardy Boys. Oh, no, yeah, I did. Well, I did a couple segments. I actually was in a kid band. I grew up with, you know, Jeff Beccaro and uh, David Page. Uh, from Toto, uh, we were, I was in a kid band with them and, uh, we were brought in to do, uh, some television stuff. So I did some TV there. I was also, uh, uh, I was on a uh, soap opera called the young and the restless. I don't know if you remember that. Um, one. I, as a kid loved that soap opera. Yeah. Yes. I did that. I did that show for about a year, year and a half, I think. And I was in a band on the show that one of the characters and the theme of the show was around a guy named Dan, uh, Danny Romolotti, who was a rock star. And I was part of that rock star band. So I would, uh, I would do that show with him. So I've been, you know, I remember bit... that. What year, when was that? Yeah. The mid eighties, right? Oh, that was probably early eighties, early eighties. It had to be early eighties. Yeah. Early eighties. I don't remember. It's funny, you know, YouTube now there's everything. I can go search those things and find those shows. I can't believe people put all this stuff up. The stuff I find now on myself on YouTube is just crazy. I know. Well, that's the thing. Everybody can share. So now you get to see things now when you search for yourself that you've never seen before, because now with being able to upload everything, people are putting new stuff up that they found that they didn't have an outlet for earlier. Yeah, I know. It's funny. It's like actually in some ways I... I'm kind of glad we didn't have all that stuff because I can't imagine being on the road now. Cause you know, when you're in rock and roll, uh, you don't want everything you're doing no. up on the internet. 
but now I can't even go play a small gig and stuff shows up. So I, it's really pretty painful because every once in a while you won't have such a good night. And the next day you'll see it all over YouTube and you're going, Oh, oh why did they? No. <laughs> so, I hear you. Well, you, yeah. well, you know, we don't want to, we, we don't want to see the backstage workings of Kenny Lee Lewis you know, and Scott Page and Hang Dynasty, because I heard what happens in Hang Dynasty stays in Hang Dynasty. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, but it's, I've had more fun than in hum any human being alive, and I'm actually alive to talk about it. So uh, it's We're crazy. Very happy about Rock and roll in those days was totally different. I mean, it was a different game than it is today because, you know, I still play a lot. I actually was just in China and I, I, I got back last week from Lebanon. I just played a a festival there called the Zouk Mikhail International Festival with a really wonderful Lebanese artist by the name of Mesa Kara. And I was invited to uh, play with her. I actually did a cover. She did a cover of Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb. And I was the featured artist on it with her and got to play the Dave Gilmore parts with my saxophone, which was kind of fun. It's kind of fun. You can see that on YouTube. Uh, it's actually pretty cool because it's with East, you know, East, uh, uh, Middle East instruments and, you know, along with the stuff. So it's a really cool version of that. So I went over and played with her. And then I'm actually going over to Italy next month uh, with a couple of the other Floyd folks to play in a big Floyd tribute band there in a, in a show in Italy in some ancient ruins. So still having fun playing, that's for sure. Well, let me give you an idea of how small this world really is. So I had okay. told you that I had friends that were from Lebanon and they've been over here for several years and our daughters go to school together. And so we were at this, you know, jump rope camp uh, performance that our daughters were in. And this was probably last week. And she had no idea that I was interviewing you. And oh, wow. she came over to me and we were talking and she said, you love music. And I said, I do. And she said, my cousin sent me a video. There's this really cool saxophonist that came over and was playing Pink Floyd. And he saw it and he sent me video. And I said, wait a minute, oh. is it Scott Page? She said, yes. How do you know that? And I said, I'm interviewing him next week which is such a small world that we oh live in. God. That's crazy. That's crazy. So I'm going to obtain that video and send that to you because you'll have to see it. All right. Cool. So you guest appeared with Brit, Fo uh, Brit Floyd as well, right? Oh, yeah. I did that a few, uh, about a month or so ago. Um, I've done it a couple times with them and they're really great. I mean, I said, I, you know, I only, I did two tunes with them. The other time I was sitting out of the audience listening and it's an incredible show. I mean, I thought it was Floyd. I mean, they have got it so well together. And so it was really fun. I got to play Us and Them and Money with them and a little bit of Us and Them. I'm mean, A little bit of, yeah, uh, not Us and Them, but uh, Shine On Your Crazy Diamond. It's fun. So, uh, yeah, I'm hoping to do some more shows with them. They hit me up and said, hey, would you come do some more shows? So I'm going to play them. But if you haven't seen it, and you probably won't get a chance to go see Floyd. If you want to get a feel for what Pink Floyd is about, Go check out their show. And it's amazing because, you know, they sell out massive places. This place was sold out. They they sell out arenas and stuff. And it's just amazing that a tribute band can go and do that. But they do such a wonderful job. It's really an incredible band. Well, it's funny you say that because we have a tribute band here in Baltimore. And maybe you've heard of them, Several Species. Uh, and they are a Floyd tribute band. And oh, wow. we're going to have to get you to Baltimore to play with them because they sell out venues, too. And it, that, the great thing is, is that there's only a few of them um, that can really pull it off because it's very, very difficult to pull off Floyd, as you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting. I played uh, where I kept my boat down in Newport. The guy that ran the docks 
his son had a tribute band. He said to me one time, this is kind of funny. He said, Hey, would you play with my son's tribute band? I said, okay, let's do it. So I go to this place in Orange County. I go in this joint. It's a 400 seater. It's beautiful. It's all set up. So I go to Soundcheck. And uh, this is what's interesting about these Floyd tribute bands. They learn everything, note for note, mm -hmm. even mistakes. They take specific shows. So we're rehearsing. I'm not rehearsing, doing the sound check, and we're going to run the tunes. And I start to play the song, and we're going through it. All of a sudden, the, the guy that runs it stops, stops, stops the band. And he looks at me, and he says, that's not what you played. <laughs> and I said, I don't remember what I played. I just make solos up every night, right? He said, no, we're doing the night, the, like the – the second night at, I forget what it was, just at Venice, blah, 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 or, or, or in Versailles or whatever it is, we're doing the second night, and that's not what you played. So I had to go into the dressing room, bring up YouTube, pull up the shows, and try to remember what I played so that I could play, because he played, you know, Dave and myself would do trade fours back and forth. Right. So I played, like Dave play a lick and stuff. So they were so in tune to have everything exactly like it was. It was just so funny. I couldn't believe it when he stopped and he said that. Said, I don't remember. That's like 20 years ago. I don't remember what I played. But like but it's diehard Floyd fans will remember so many things. And it's funny, you know, they're yeah. so particular about it. And it is true. These tribute bands really want to get it right because it's like I said, it is near impossible to get it true to form. But they pull it off and they do a really nice job. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, it's funny is a lot of these tribute bands are are cleaning up. I mean, the millions and millions of dollars. Some of these bands I'm I heard that, that you know, like Brit Floyd, they're doing multi multi millions of dollars a year mm -hmm. revenue. And so it's there's a big surge because people want to go back. And all these tribute bands are now really becoming legitimized as real entity artists that are out there knocking it out of the park. It's really cool. Absolutely. And Britt Floyd has come through here, through the Baltimore area, several times. And I have not had a chance to see them, but I will get to see them. Yeah. There's but Mike, Mike has seen them. My producer, Mike, has seen them. Uh, yeah. I, there's actually a clip I posted from the, Blit, the Britt Floyd show on my Twitter account. That's the, uh, we did us and them. And you can kind of get a feel for the show. I mean, they get the circular lighting grid, all the lights, lasers, everything. It's just it's just phenomenal what they've done. Well, I'm going to check that out. They produce all yep. their own videos. Yes. What was that? They produce all their own videos for the screen. They produce all their oh. own videos. Yep. 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 They do very great job. So tell me about Hang Dynasty, because I got to talk to Kenny Lee Lewis a little bit about it. Um, and the concept is oh so cool if you are in a corporate world or you have uh the ability to hire this band that you're in and get all of these players together in one room on one stage tell me what that's like and tell me a little bit about hang dynasty yeah. hey, the hang dynasty has been going now gosh let me see since the 80s <laughs> <laughs> no probably 70s 70s yeah i think the hang dynasty we started in the 70s uh was actually a buddy carl verheyen who's in Super Tramp, uh, the guitar player, myself, we came up with the name one day. He would always say something that's like the hang. Hey, man, it's like a hang dynasty. And we said, hey, let's call that the band. So we called it that. And the whole idea is it's a revolving band of players. The main players has always been Kenny Lee and myself have been the kind of the, 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 the two sort of leaders of the band that have kind of kept it together. And, you know, we have all kinds of incredible players. Lee Scalar from Phil Collins' band, you know, him, the great bass player with 
you know, the big beer, legendary bass player. Uh, yes. Edgar Winter plays with us. Uh, Jeff Baxter from the Doobie Brothers. Mike Finnegan, the incredible B3 player, plays with everybody from Bonnie Raitt to, uh, you know, he played with Hendrix. He's like an amazing. And then we use the Tower Tower Power horns and a variety of drummers, you know, everybody from Jeff Beccaro did it to uh, Jim Keltner, uh, Greg Bissonette. I mean, all the great players have actually played. And it's one of those things we get together and we – we play, you know, maybe do, uh, you know, a half a dozen to, you know, shows a year where we get together. And we usually do kind of big corporate gigs. You know, we did Microsoft for like three years in a row for their big, huge parties. But it's a great band. Um, we get together. We play songs from each of the bands we play with. Then we do a lot of R&B and rock and roll. And it's always a joy because I'm telling you that band rocks. It always rocks really hard. So it's always really fun. And it's like a it's like old home week to get together. So we call it the Hang Dynasty because it's kind of like this dynasty of guys that play together and played with all the bands. And so it's kind of a lot of fun for us to get together. It's really cool. My dad's part of an organization called YPO, which is Young Presidents Organization. And you guys yep. played an event for them. I yep. believe it was in Texas, maybe. Uh, no. or maybe it was New Mexico. New Mexico? It was yeah, it was a Santa Fe. Santa Fe, and actually, okay. John Anderson from Yes did that one with us. And so he was much part fun. Of that. I said to oh, my yeah, dad, "Like you got to get them to Baltimore and do it here. <laughs> it's fun." Yeah. YPO is um, a great organization. Y- YPO yeah. is a great organization, but now he's you know older, and now he's part of WPO, which is World Presidents Organization. So he's oh. he's upped it a little bit. Um, oh. Yeah. So Kenny just sent me a message the other day, and he said. Well, have you gone on the Hang Dynasty and watched Frankenstein? And I said, yeah, let me go look at that. And we were watching it. And, um, you know, when when Edgar Winter, we were calling it the keytar. I mean, that is that is a heavy piece right there to have around your neck. Um, oh, yeah. Watching that. And he's going back and forth between the bongo drums and the keytar. I mean, this is that's we're talking heavy duty here. We're, our mouths dropped open and we're going, how, how is he doing this? Well, Edgar's one of the great musicians of all time. Absolutely. I mean, if people, don't, if some of the younger artists out there, people you might have in your audience, if you don't know who Edgar Winter is, please go check him out. The, the one album, I think it was the white album he did, I can't remember what it was called, Entrance, I believe. Go get that record. He will blow your mind because not only is he an incredible keyboard player and one of the great, great, great singers, go, go Google him and listen to him do Tobacco Road, but he's also one of my favorite saxophone players. He's like an incredible saxophone. So getting to play with Edgar was always, you know, like I felt like I was really around royalty with him. Um, but yeah, Edgar's really something. Yeah. And I, I, you know, just watching some of these videos and seeing you guys up there together and covering all of your various songs from the different bands that you guys are in. I mean, it really is something. So you got to go check out hangdynasty.com and watch some of these performances because it's mind blowing. It really is. You know, I, I, th- I don't think I've ever been on that site, so I have no idea what's there. Isn't that funny? Because I know Kenny ended up putting that up. I'm going to go check it out myself. I don't even know what's on. Well, it's hangdynasty.com, and he's, you know. Okay, well, there you go. We got the URL. That's good. There you go. <laughs> so when you were touring, you know, over the years and compared, you know, pretty much back to the 80s and 90s compared to now, we have such an overabundance of connection and being able to stay connected with your family and your friends. And back then you didn't really have that. And talking to different musicians, some thought that 
it was a disservice. It would be a disservice to have that overabundance of connection. And others thought that they would have really liked it. Uh, some wanted to stay more connected and some really kind of wanted to be left alone and do their tour and not be bothered and get their work done. How do you feel about that? The difference well, in social media well, now? Well, you know, that, that's an area that I'm, my businesses and everything, I deal in that space. And, you know, I know when we didn't even have cell phones, I remember having my first brick. You remember those first Motorola phones? I remember yeah. having one of those. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's actually interesting. I think personally, there's something to say about just being not being tied to that thing and focus. I'm actually glad because it allowed me to not be stuck my nose inside that darn phone all the time because we are addicted to them. There's no question. I can tell you I'm addicted to it because it's where I run my business and everything and I'm on it all day long. And I think that I would have lost or missed so much of being on the road and touring and enjoying the company of people and everything else. If my nose and everybody else's noses were buried in those darn things, right? right? So my feeling is, is unfortunately, I don't think all these young artists don't really realize the freedom that we had in those days. Uh, we had to use, you know, we had to go to a cell phone, you know, not a cell phone, but a phone booth mm -hmm. to make calls or from our hotel rooms. And, you know, sometimes, you know, a phone call, like if you were in Japan on the on the phone there, you'd be spending like, you know, $10 a minute, you know, it was like pretty crazy to, to be on those phones. Right. Uh, but I'm actually, you know, I'm very thankful that I got to do it actually without it. I mean, I, there's pros and cons to both sides of it, but I would, if I had my preference, I would definitely like to do it without it because I think you can't stop and smell the roses when your head's in there texting and typing and checking your statuses and stuff all the time. I think it's actually a real issue uh, that's starting to happen because I see it so much. I taught a class at, at USC last year and I could not believe how many kids were buried in those things during the classes. I think it's an addiction that's actually a little frightening and touring I think is actually better now. I mean, I mean, was, was better then because I think there was more interaction. It was more special. Now everything you do is out on the road. It's out there. So it doesn't make it quite as special. It's interesting that People can have the bird's eye view, but now you're just like totally under a microscope and you've got to be careful where you're going. Everybody will just, you know, take these videos and put them up there and say stuff about you and do things. So personally, I think being on the road back in those days was a real blessing without all of that stuff. But now that we have all of that stuff and you were tying in your business with Ignited Network and you're doing mentoring pretty much to artists to get them to kind of have more of a business side, but also yep. to, to how to work social media. Because if you're thinking about it and it comes into play and you have older artists, some of them don't know how to work some of this stuff. For instance, you need to get with your friend, Kenny Lee Lewis, who I had to teach how to do a Facebook live. And he's come a long way since I've interviewed him. So I feel yeah. really proud. <laughs> yeah, that's really it's really funny. Yeah. I, you know, that's the thing. It's, it's like, you know, I'm really close to the market because I've been a tech guy and launching my companies through the years. And so I have to stay on top of things. And, um, you know, I, there's real value. I, I believe this is the greatest time in history for the independent artist. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's very difficult now because, you know, music's like water. It's free. Uh, well, water's not free anymore. It's more expensive than gasoline. Mm -hmm. actually. So I'm going to say it's more like air. Uh, you know, you can't sell your music anymore. So it's kind of a new world of how to build and grow a business. Um, I teach them lean startup principles and business kind of things and 
how to really grow and build that fan base. My whole model is based on a thing called a thousand true fans. True fan is somebody will spend one hundred dollars a year on you. If I have one thousand of those, uh, I can you know generate a hundred thousand dollars in revenue. So we teach them to go small and uh, kind of really learn how to build and grow and find that super fans. And that's what our network is. It's really a super fan network. It's designed for one to two percent of your audience because it's a paid network. You have to pay to get in uh, because we got to build a business. We have to have some way to pay for our, you know, what we're doing. So it's really about that. But uh, yeah, it's it's def- very interesting. It's it's a lot of again my old my peers. They're pretty lost at what's going on right now. Uh, so that's why I'm thankful because it allows me to stay young, really, and uh, teaching all these artists. I was doing a radio show. Uh, once a week that was going out to about two and a half million people a week and I would mentor artists and kind of help them build their business. So it's an area I'm really excited about uh, teaching them because really social media now is your business. It's not just a promotions thing you're going to talk because the rule of this, the rule of thumb is, is whoever owns the audience wins. And the beautiful part is with your cell phone and like Twitter, you know, I think Twitter is one of the great business tools of all time. I call it the 24 hour cocktail party. It's always on. <laughs> Uh, I can go, I can go find anybody. I call it the stocking network too, because it's, you know, it's, it's not an invite network. You can just go follow somebody and start engaging. And next thing you know, you're talking to the president of Warner brothers, right? Which is incredible tool, but you have to learn how to use it and understanding new principles. And there's these whole, there's this whole new thing. that's kind of been around for a while called growth hacking, which is ways of really learning how to market and use technology to uh, kind of build and grow your audience. But it is a incredible time for those that really want to think like a business. And really what I tell artists today is, you know, the first question I ask every artist is what problem do you solve? Right. And they're like, huh? And we know as a business, if I'm going to start a business, I got to solve a problem. And today it's really about what you stand for. What is your lifestyle and why do people want to connect with you? Because it's really going to be, it's based on relationships now. So it's a, it's an incredible time. I love all the tech, but at the same time, it scares me in a sense because it is taking people and putting them in a place where they're not stepping around and really stopping. Where am I? And looking how beautiful things are around them and they get lost in those machines. So I think there's a, interesting things that are going to be happening over the next three to five years. There's more disruption now than ever as we're seeing autonomous cars coming on. AI is starting to take over. Um, you know, if you don't understand how to use chatbots and all that, you're going to be left behind. We're moving into a real-time messaging world. Social media is dropping. It's going into this real-time. So there's a whole new thing. So anybody, any artist or anybody out there, if you have a business or whatever, you need to start figuring out how to build and grow your audience because that's if you're not going to be a media network, which is everybody, I don't care if you're U-Haul trucks or whatever, you're in the media business because if you're not, you're going to get left behind. So it's not just about having fun and doing it. It is your business. So that's my little advice to everybody out there. And it is a great, very exciting time. But get your nose out of that thing once in a while and get out there and get out in nature. That's Smell the flowers. Smell those flowers, yes. Well, you know, that's how um, – this is why I started the show now uh, because it's going to be media-based. Media and social media has gotten me to this point. In fact, that's how it connected you and I. And that's how it connected Kenny and I. Uh, well, actually, Kenny, um, I got a, a message from my dear friend, Larry Lingle. I don't know if you're familiar with Larry, but Larry was the guitarist for Frankie Valley since 82. Okay. And he played his last gig with him last year. 
And so um, he suggested that I talk to Kenny and then, uh, and, and then we, you know, we talked about Hang Dynasty and you and I connected. And so social media plays such a huge part, like you said, in growth of your business. And are you oh, taking, yeah, are you taking unknown artists as well and trying to get them more exposure kind of like, uh, well, I know you're working with Shalita Burke. Yes. My favorite artist in mastermind genius. <laughs> that girl is really something. I've never met anybody like her. She's killing it right now. I mean, it's just incredible. She was just number 14 on billboard. She just had the number one and number two spots on hype machine, uh, for her last single. She's almost at 4 million plays on Spotify. Uh, just since last week, she's got over 250,000 views on YouTube and she's an incredible, she's really the future of what artists need to do because she understands engagement. She understands technology. She knows how to build audience. She knows how to engage. She's definitely figuring it out. But yeah, some some artists, again, I look for artists that have to have an entrepreneurial spirit and really have the 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 the, uh, the, the wherewithal or the, the real drive to realize that, you know, the business part of it has to be just like your, the art part of it. Because uh, I get some artists that want to just sit around, you know, write songs and smoke fatties, and that's fine. Uh, but the problem is, is that that's really the lottery you're playing there because it's very difficult to get your music out there, especially when it's not the product. You can't sell CDs. Nobody, you know, Spotify plays. You have to have millions and millions and millions of plays in order to really make any money. So it's really about being a personality, building a lifestyle and building the relationships with people that really want to follow you and your journey and those things around. So, yeah, but I do work with a lot of new artists. So I look for specific artists. So our network the way it works is we're looking only for specific kinds of people that have the right kind of, uh, you know, uh, online metrics and are already in the engagement space and really have the want to want to really build their own direct to consumer business and kind of be independent. So, yeah, certain ones we will. So we have people submit. We don't let anybody just start on our network. That's not our model. Our model is really more like a cable network. Think of us more like. Uh, you know, every artist is their own home and garden channel, you know, their television channel, right. so to speak. And uh, they have to create their shows and content and create something that people care about and will actually pay for. But we do look for artists and uh, you can go to, uh, I think it's ignited.live. I believe that's it right now. And then there's a form that you can fill out and we'll look at it. And we're looking for certain kinds of artists where we help them not only identify their fans, but help grow their audience. Kind of the unique feature of our network is, is when you join our network as an artist, you plug in your social media, and once you do that, we go and we analyze your audience and we find your super fans for you. So, is it so, important to have numbers already when people come to you, followers, it, a certain amount? It is important. At least they have to have some form of engagement. Now, some of them are out touring a lot, so they're out in front of people, so they can build their audience. Clearly, if you have a, a relatively large audience or it's really about the engagement, mm -hmm. it's one thing people can have. And if you're posting and if you're not getting a ton of retweets and hearts and, you know, likes and all that kind of stuff, then it's you're not really engaging with your audience. So we look for engagement because you can have a small audience as much as a thousand people, but have incredible engagement that, that gives you a, you know, you're a candidate because it is about the engagement. So it's not just about the numbers. It's about how you're interacting and what you're doing, you know. So that's a real big part of it because it really takes a specific new type of artist. They like a Shalita Burke that have, a, you know, get up every day and go to work and 
they know that they got to spend half their time building and growing their network and the other half working on their music and uh, then bringing it all together and creating value for their fans. So basically it's, it's more, it's, it's quality and quantity combined, but it's more important to have quality first to get to that quantity. Correct. Absolutely. 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 Remember it's the money's in the super fan. An artist will make more money. will make basically the, the, the statistics, again, I'm a data guy is around 67% of the money that an artist will make will be from 5% of their audience. Hmm. And so it's that 5% that we look for in our network because those are the ones that are most engaged and will be most li likely to write a check. And because artists, I try to teach them, it's great to have fans, but I, you need customers because this is a business. If you want to treat it as a business, you have to think like a business and how to satisfy customer needs. So, you know, and, and I'm all for fans. And, hey, I'm not saying it's for every artist because they can do it. But here's the deal. If you're an artist and you're just getting your stuff out there and you're not really making any money, that's a hobby. And that's fine. But if you want to get up every day and, and build a living and a career out of your business, you got to figure out how to generate revenue. So that's what I focus on. Everything I do is about conversion and revenue. I actually teach a, a whole system I have. It's called SPACE. SPACE stands for Story, Plan, Army, Conversion, Education. So it's a whole kind of a courseware that we take through, and that's what I taught at USC last year, is this process of how to build your business. Because story is critical, because if you don't have the right story and stand for the right thing, nobody's going to care. But at the same time, once you know the story and, and what it is, I can then find the audience that cares about that story through technology. Because it used to be where you used to have to put things out into the world, but that doesn't matter anymore. It's more about targeting and finding your audience. Because so once I know all the key words, the things, the people, where it is, I'll go find your audience for you and bring them to you. So that's a different model. So it's really about targeting specific audience and user behaviors. That's really critical because Shalita, as she told me, because she's not only this incredible artist, one of the great singers I've heard in a long time, and just incredible talent, art, songwriter, she's a data scientist. And she was the one that told me this. People do not buy products. Behaviors buy products. So you need to understand behaviors and understand the right type of market. And then you can have a wonderful life building and satisfying those needs. So it's really new techniques and way to think for artists. And that's kind of what I do now mostly every day. You know, that's my focus. That's smart. It really is because you don't hear of a lot of other people offering this to artists that are either established or emerging and a lot of people need guidance in this area because they don't get it so for you to put that out there and allow people to continue to grow as a mentor as you mentoring them i mean you've been reading up on business and doing this since the 80s right yeah. and so oh, yeah. putting this you know and who knew in the 80s that you would end up with a business that was like this and it's yep. all evolving as time goes. And like you're saying, in the next three to five years, things are going to be so much different. And you're actually keeping up with that. And a lot of people can't keep up with it. Yeah, it's a it's a daily thing. Remember, I get up every morning and I read blog posts and I follow specific people. That's what people don't understand. Artists never understand. Everything you need is using that tool called Google. Mm -hmm. And you can start finding with the social networks and on Twitter, you can start following all these great people that have incredible 
uh, you know, training and all that to kind of build your business. And uh, it's just a matter of getting up every day and making that a priority because, you know, again, I love business. I try to look at business as just as much as art as making the art, and I try to combine it together. And that's what I tried to teach artists. Don't look at business as this ugly thing that you got to do and you're selling out and all of that. No, the art of being able to get people to care about what you're doing and getting them to buy your stuff and show up at your shows and doing all that takes an art form in itself. And all the tools and stuff that you need now is available at your fingertips. It's virtually free. You got free distribution through YouTube and Spotify, I mean, all these places, which we never had. And you've got this device where you can manage all your fans and have a direct connect. I mean, it's incredible. And you don't need anybody. But you have to learn. And it takes some time. And it takes time to grow and build your audience. And it's just, it's work. You got to get up and go to work. But you got to love it. And I love it. I love business. I love art. And I love I love to mix the two together. And that's kind of the approach that I think we need to find for artists to get out there. Well, it's, it's true. You have to have passion in what you do. Because passion yes. is what drives. Yeah, you got to find something you care about. That's why when I tell artists, you know, when your story, if you find something that you care about, what else do you care about besides your music? Because people, you can find audience. It's like, are, are you into causes? Are you into things? Something else you can talk about because it's really difficult to talk about me, 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 me all the time, mm -hmm. right? But what's nice is when you start talking about other things and other people and helping them. If you're into food, cooking, uh, you can create products. You can do affiliate deals with people. There's so many ways to do things now. It's just a matter of really learning and getting educated. And if you do, you can set yourself up for life you know, by building out your own business. And being your old broadcast network, you have to be a media network now. It's now, do you help these people internationally? Do you accept international artists, or are you just sticking with a national database? Of well, artists? we're gonna we're 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 gonna be looking for anybody. We we are actually right now tracking about two hundred thousand artists across the globe, mm -hmm. looking for specific artists that would be really good for our network. And so we're listening because that's what's beautiful is there are all these tools now. We can listen to see which artists are starting to break out, what people are talking about, and we're kind of ranking them. We reach out to them and say, hey, you want to build a business? You're doing all the right things right now, but how do I monetize on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, right? I, I got to have a mechanism for doing all of that. Oops, my dog is going crazy. That's okay. We're, so, do we're dog friendly here on Backstage oh, Pass. Yeah, we're, we're dog friendly. Uh, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> She's outside and the neighbors are going by. What kind of uh, dog? What kind of dog is it? Let's give her a little oh, bit of love here. Oh, my little dog! I love my dog. It's actually a a, a, a water uh, a Portuguese water dog and a poodle called a water doodle. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's the most it's the most wonderful dog uh, I've ever had. It's incredible. It's like it's got it's small, but it's got these giant webbed feet. Aww. It's so funny are so much bigger than that and it's like you know and poodles are wonderful dogs and i never thought i'd say that i always had rottweilers but they're so smart and uh they don't shed and it's a great dog so yeah pearl i love pearl it's the greatest dog i call it the, the zen dog because that dog sits on me and it brings me to calm because it's so relaxed and just <clears throat> melts Is, in. isn't so it true i have oh, a yeah. i have a 10 month old puggle oh nice oh uh, well I didn't realize when I, my, my kids really wanted a pug and I love beagles. So I said, let's get a puggle. Well, I didn't realize she's a very high maintenance, hyper puppy, but I love oh. her to death and she sleeps on me. And I love that. Yeah. Be, uh, be, uh, beagles in general are very high strung. You know, that's why, that's why I went for the water dog poodle mix. It's yes. like a little calmer. And what is your dog's name? Pearl. Pearl. Okay. 
I have after Pearl. After, named after Pearl, Pearl Bailey, and my my sister's not, dog is named Charlie after Charlie Parker. So we got Pearl and Charlie. I have Georgie Girl. Oh, nice! After the song hey, Georgie Girl. George, yeah. Well, there, that's that's very interesting because um, my dad inventing the Wawa pedal at the time. That was the second song he did the Wawa pedal with, with his Hey Georgia, Hey There Georgie Girl. Da, 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 da. So that's how far I go back. Oh, <laughs> get out! That's wild. There you go. I, I just, love that. I just retweeted that. You just retweeted that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Oh. Well, thank you so much for coming on to our show. We are so honored to have you. Um, this has been an incredible, enlightening experience with you and learning all about your business venture and touring and what that was like with you. Uh, so it was so great to connect with you. And I just greatly appreciate you being well, on here. Well, thank you very much. This was a fun conversation. I love doing this. So if you ever want me back again, I would love to do it. There's a lot to talk about. Maybe I come back when we start to launch the network and we can talk about a lot of that. And, and then also, if you get a lot of artists, I can get on and do my space deal. I'll, show them te I'll teach them the whole little formula. That sounds great. We're going to have to get you to Baltimore with Kenny. And, and he, has the, he has the crab place and we'll all go get some crabs. Let's do it. I love Baltimore crab. Let's do it. Come visit. We'll plan it. All right. Thank you, my friend, and good luck with your show. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. That was amazing having Scott Page on our show. Such an honor, and we've really followed his career for so many years, and to have him talk about all the things that he's doing. Wow. Just wow. Well, now we've come to the segment of our show that we call Local Flavor, where I pick a Baltimore slash Maryland based band and feature them on our show. And this episode, I've I've picked a band that was founded in 2003 here in Baltimore. They just released a, an album called Friction in 2015, and they describe themselves as seasoned rock at its best. The band is called Push. You can visit them push live at yahoo.com or pushkicksass.com. Geo, Dave, George, and Joe of Push. And here is their song, Stranger, on Backstage Pass. It's Maryland. It's local. It's Baltimore. It's local flavor with Meredith Marks. Watch out for the stranger!
that was Stranger from Baltimore band Push here on Backstage Pass. Well, thanks again for joining in for episode six. It was great to have Scott Page from Pink Floyd and Toto and Supertramp with us doing great things with his tech company. And thanks to the Baltimore band Push for being on our episode tonight. Stay tuned for episode seven, where we're going to have Rob Arthur, who currently is the keyboardist for the Peter Frampton Band. Have a great time, everybody, and I will talk to you later. You've been hanging backstage with Backstage Pass and Meredith Marks. Now get your ass off the tour bus. This is a big-timing comedy production.